Welcome to the Walter Paisley Movie House, where we celebrate the little engines that could not. Coming to you from Nildog Manor Studios, I'm here with my engineer, Jason Harris, with music by Jonathan Harmon. And I'm your host, Dylan Rory. Today's podcast is brought to you by Dee's Nut Shack, home of the Salty Omelette, available at your local outlet mall or flea market food court. When you want nuts, see Dee's. Today's guest is a legend of cult film, and it would take most of this podcast to just list the movies he's made and let alone the people he's worked with. As of this recording, he has directed 160 films, produced over 115, written 79, and acted in 47. He's worked in varying capacities in film throughout his long career. He started making movies at the age 14, eventually working toward becoming a makeup artist. He found that he wanted to make movies as well. Starting in 1978 with the sci-fi horror, The Brain Leeches, produced for just $298. He's also performed as a wrestler under the name Fabulous Freddy Valentine, of which he has said, I amassed the legal limit of injuries and finally decided to stop before my kids were fatherless. His cult movie cred is about as accomplished as any filmmaker could hope to have. Working with legends like Horace J. Ackerman, David Carradine, Diane Salinger, Lee Van Cleef, Brink Stevens, Gunnar Hansen, Linnea Quigley, Eddie Deason, Rick Drayson, Gil Gerard, Mary Warrenoff, Karen Black, Michael Berryman, Jan Michael Vincent, John Philip Law, Barbara Steele, for God's sake, Rust Hamblin, PJ Souls, Martin Landau, Jeffrey Combs, The Muscles from Brussels himself, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Eileen, Yui Bull, John Carradine, Peter Cushing, and former podcast guests, Debbie Rashan and Lloyd Kaufman, and that's literally just a sampling. He's been called the director's director, moving with ease between genres, bringing us many cult classics, including Scalps, The Alien Dead, Cyclone, Commando Squad, Dinosaur Island, Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, Sleazemania, and the follow-up Sleazemania Strikes Back. Mom, Can I Keep Her, Sideshow, Teenage Cave Girl, The Kid with the X-Ray Eyes, Attack of the 60-Foot Centerfold, Scream Queen Hot Tub Party, A Mother's Revenge, and like former podcast guest Debbie Roshan, a whole bunch of movies with the word bikini in the title. He even once commissioned a screenplay from the iconic Ed Wood. Please welcome the man who has 53 separate mentions in the iconic Psychotronic Video Guide, and who has said that one day he'd really like to make a giant scorpion movie, and we'd really like him to do that as well. The inimitable Fred Olin Ray. What an introduction. Anything else to add, Fred? <laughs> well, some of that's correct and some of it's not, but you are know. you t- are you telling me the internet does not provide full facts? That, that absolutely, absolutely. I, I don't know who Bowl is. Um, <laughs> I, I I doubt you guys were on set the same day. You appeared in a film together. Um, I'd have to look it up again to be sure which one it was. But I think they they grabbed you, Lloyd Kaufman, and a few other uh, of the the cult name directors to to just be in maybe a day's worth of shooting, if that much. But uh, the, it was um, just going through. Uh, everything I could find on you and watching interviews with you on YouTube, it's overwhelming, uh, just the amount of work you've done. So I'd like to go back a little bit. I know you've said before, and I've seen it mentioned several times, you referred to uh, Abbott Costello meet Frankenstein as being a movie that was highly influential on you. What, what can you tell me about that? I just love that movie. It goes back to a, a time when I wasn't old enough to stay up 
to watch shock theater. I don't even know if I knew shock theater existed, <laughs> but it came on, it was going to come on like at a 10 o'clock movie in the middle of the week. And I'd never seen a Frankenstein or Wolfman movie or any of that stuff. And I pretended to be sick so I could stay home from school and uh, see this movie. I think my mom suspected as much, but uh, she, she didn't let on. And uh, I've always had a real soft spot on that because Lugosi plays Dracula. Yeah. And it was at the end of the 1940s and I'd seen him in some earlier 40s movies later and he didn't look nearly as good or vibrant as he did in this film. This film made me wonder why the hell wasn't he playing Dracula in all the movies, but uh, uh, I just, I just, I love the combination of the monsters and, um, and I loved uh, how they were used at, in, a, in a comedy, which was fairly non-threatening for kids. Right. Literally one of my favorite movies. Uh, it was one of the first ones I ever screened on a movie night. It's, uh, it's got so much going for it. I uh, agree with you getting Lugosi back in there. And uh, I think, I think Glenn Strange actually made a great Frankenstein. Yeah. You know, it's one of those films that if I'm, if I'm ever not feeling great, if I'm a little blue or low on something, I can put that in and um, I, it'll make me happy. I'll yeah. feel better at least for uh, 80 minutes or however long that thing is. Uh, <laughs> my troubles go away. So, you know, I think it's therapeutic, to be honest. I have to agree with you. It is a really great film. Um, you, you mentioned that uh, your, your mom was probably on to you. I, I read where you said that uh, your love from horror kind of comes from the fact that your parents wouldn't let you indulge in it. Was it kind of a forbidden fruit that you eventually got to chase? No, because it was my dad. It was my uh, father who um, okay. urged me to stay up and see Shock Theater probably in 1964 in Tampa. And it was The Wolfman. And back then they'd run two movies or a double feature. And uh, I played football. I've always been sort of athletic. And uh, they didn't like me to stay up too late, but they would let me in that. And he urged me to watch this movie. I was terrified by it. And, uh, but then I got the hang of it. And uh, my dad would stay up and I would kind of wait and hope he would fall asleep during the first feature because then I'd cruise right into it <laughs> until he woke up and then said, you know, what the hell are you doing? Go to bed. And I'm like, oh, all right. <laughs> But I, I was lucky. I was at that time when Famous Monsters magazine was at its heyday. And I call it the great monster renaissance because there were model kits and paint by number and wallets and notebooks and just whatever, the monster dolls and, and the monsters in the Adams family, the outer limits and everything, the gum cards, everything was happening if you were into monster movies. And so, you know, when I grew up, you were either into hot rods, surfing or monster films. And, um, I never was a big one for looking at car engines and I wasn't any interest in surfing. So I, I just kind of fell into the monster thing. So did you collect like the Aurora models? Were you into those at all or, or were you yeah, more I, just I, watching I, don't know I, if I collected them, but I certainly had them. Uh, I've got in my little collection, I have a small collection of things, but I do have a, an original issue Frankenstein still in the box with the directions on the stems unpainted. That's and, um, fantastic. Was, well, how I got it was amazing. I was working on a movie called Invisible Mom 2 with Dee Wallace and Mary Warnoff. And <laughs> I went into the kid's bedroom set and there it was amongst all the toys they had rented from a rental house. And I looked at it and I went, oh my God. I said, and I went to the art people. I said, what would happen if this got lost? They said, it's a hundred dollars, Fred. I said, take this and put it in my car right now. 
<laughs> and that's how I got it. I got it right off the set. I stole it. I don't even know if it appears in the film. I took it and we just said, <laughs> we lost it. And I paid the hundred dollars and I, I've never been happy. That is fantastic. That's a great story. <laughs> we did the same thing with Dinosaur Island. Steve Barquette, who was in that movie, was a, an aficionado of uh, the original King Kong. And he said, Fred, he goes, if you go over to RKO property department, they'll rent original props from King Kong. He said, we should go over there and rent them for Dinosaur Island. So we did. And then, and then oh, heaven forbid, by my own calculation, the hut burned down that had all of these props in it. And we paid about $2,500 uh, for these props from King Kong, the original 1933 mm -hmm. Kong. And it was pretty amazing. It was pretty amazing. <laughs> so what, what were the props that you were able to get? Uh, some of them were shields that, and drums. The drums were very easily identifiable in the movie. Uh, we got some shields that were from Mighty Joe Young and the original Shi, the 1935 Shi. And uh, Steve got some kind of big knife from uh, the kind of a carved wooden big thing. I'm not sure what movie set it was from, but we got some rifles and, you know, mostly that was the kind of stuff we got. Shields and drums and uh, some, some hand props. Was that Steve Latshaw? Steve Barquette. Steve Barquette, I, I'm sorry. I, okay. I made, the guy who made the movie Aftermath. And okay, he, got it. He's in, that, he's in the Dinosaur Island. He's the guy who gets killed by the Triceratops. Getting to touch those props must have felt, for somebody like you who loves films as much as you do, I, and this is going to sound cheesy, but it, it had to have felt a little, I, I don't know, spiritual is the word, but somewhat uh, magical being able to just touch those props. Well, we were, we were certainly thrilled. <laughs> we're, we were thrilled to have them. I used to go to Western Costume, uh, which I think is still around in one form or another, but I knew that Boris Karloff's clothes from those four Mexican films he made, I knew they came from Western. And I went through every white lab coat looking for the name tag to see if I couldn't find Karloff's laboratory coat. And I couldn't find it, but we, when we were making Invisible Mom 2, Mickey Dolenz and Mary Warnoff yeah. were playing like um, Adam's family character. And Mickey's outfit was incredible. And we looked in it and the tag said Raul Julia. It was... Raul Julia's costume from uh, the Adams family. Adams family. That's fantastic. We didn't lose it. We returned that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Mickey, Mickey would have loved to have had it. I'm sure Probably so. <laughs> well, you mentioned Mary Warnoff. I, I have to ask, she's such an icon. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, started out in the factory with Andy Warhol, uh, broke out with uh, Silent Night, Bloody Night later on, and then just swept cult film kind of across the board. Yeah. What, was it, what was it like working with her? Well, Mary did two films for us mm -hmm. and uh, she was extremely pleasant and she had made a book. She had a coffee table book where she had photographed, I believe they were gardens, you know, like arrangements of hedges and, and statuary and gardens. And she had, she had this whole book. She gave us a copy of it. And, um, you know, she was, she was just down to earth. I mean, you know, we got on very well and she, she'd come over to the house. We, with some, we had some great parties. I mean, we could have made movies at the parties at my house <laughs> over the years because you know, you'd never know who would come over uh, when you put out the invite. And um, so we had a great time. It's been a great run. 
Can you can you give me a, just an idea of maybe one of those parties who all showed up? What, what's your what's your best memory from one of those parties? Um, well, you know, Bob Quarry uh, was a member of our family. I found him uh, retired, basically brought him out of retirement, got him back to working again. And Bob became a fixture in our household. He would house sit for me and babysit for Chris when he was little and I had to leave town. And Bob would tell you these outrageous stories sometimes and you kind of go, wow, you know, this is a story, right? Everything sounds like a story. And he said, uh, we, I, we were working with David Hedison and Bob said, oh, I remember David Hedison when everybody called him Al. We used to go to the same gym together and, you know, hung out all the time. And I went, yeah, yeah, right. So we had a, a little get together when my son Max was born to show the baby off. And Bob was already there and David Hedison walks walks into the house and Bob looks over and goes, ow. And David looked right at him and went, Bobby. And I went, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, you know, I thought, you know, whatever Bob would tell you, take it with a grain of salt, it might be true. Uh, David Carradine <laughs> used to pass out on the floor uh, with a lit cigarette in his hand. And, uh, you know, sort of stuff like that, things like that. <laughs> You, you became very uh, connected with the Carradine family, especially with David and his father, John, who's an icon, uh, of course, in cult film. Um, I, I could just sit here and talk to you about people you've worked with, but I, I've got to ask you about John Carradine. Uh, he's just such a, a important figure in cult film. That was something that, you know, that's the, that when you're a fan that grew up in the drive-ins like me, you, you would get to a point where, it's a lot of these actors that you watched in films weren't that in demand anymore, but they still wanted to work. So anytime I could, I would bring in somebody who I had admired and wanted to either uh, meet or do a film with or whatever. And uh, John Carradine was a real bucket list. And it was on the tomb um, that we were able to, uh, the tomb had a bunch of actors who were, book that didn't appear like Aldo Ray and Mamie Van Doren. Yeah. And you've got, you have, do you have some, is that the one you have some footage of Aldo Ray on that you haven't used yet? No, that was, was later. That a later one. Okay. That was later, but we got, we made an offer to John Carradine because we knew David. We talked to David for something else. And David's wife at the time, his name was Gail. She was very instrumental in putting me together with, uh, with John. And uh, I was, just delighted. And, you know, he, he was so old. I, I would like, a lot of times I would pick the actors up myself and drive them to set. So I could have that 20 minutes in alone in the car with them. I would drive Barbara Steele. I would drive Robert Vaughn, Lee Van Cleef, anybody that I wanted to spend some one-on-one -on -one time with. Cause once you're on the set, it's business and it's, yeah. it's go, 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 you know? So I would pick up uh, John Carradine at the Sunset Hyatt, which is where he liked to stay. And I had worked with him already in Shockwaves in 1975. And uh, he came out of the elevator, I remember that, he was completely bent over at the waist. I mean, he literally was looking at his shoes with a cane. And it took him forever to walk from the elevator to the car. And that's why he's always sitting down in those later films. Is there, right. People used to say, Fred, why don't you have him get up and walk over and look at a chart or something? I said, listen, there's not enough film in a magazine to film him walking across the set. You know, it was just, it would take him 30 minutes. 
Right. But uh, it was great. He was very, he was very sharp. He didn't remember. He was one of those guys who could remember anything from the forties, mm-hmm. but he couldn't remember yesterday. And um, he had, uh, in fact, I was just talking to my fiance about John Carradine because I, I dreamed about him the other night and he had a, he has a, he had a brown tweed suit and uh, he did the tomb and he was wearing that suit. And then a year or so later, he came back and we did another, a bunch of little bits and pieces or something. And I brought in a uh, photograph from the tomb for him to sign. And he's in the makeup chair and he looks down at the photo and he goes, oh my God, he goes, I'm, I'm even wearing the same suit. And he was. And his funeral was a closed uh, casket. Mm-hmm. Uh, but later at David's house, uh, after a few drinks, David decided, because there weren't many people there, I was one of his neighbors, uh, but he decided he was going to open the coffin. And he opened uh, John's coffin because they had bolts, bolts around the lid. Mm-hmm. And John was buried in that same suit. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it was very strange because he had that terrible arthritis, mm-hmm. his hands and his feet. Yeah. And when we opened the coffin, you could see that his, his, hands and feet were missing there the sleeves were empty from the elbows down and i'm guessing that they they had let these doctors for study about arthritis probably you know have at it but uh and the coffin was meant to be a closed coffin but he was completely he completely looked great in fact he he didn't have a wrinkle on his face i was stunned he was uh, very very uh he looked very good in the coffin and david uh, took a champagne toast and, and like they poured it in the coffin <laughs> so they took it out the next day they cremated him the next day and uh gail and uh, some of the others went out on a boat and uh, put him in the ocean because he loved the ocean so that's beautiful that's yeah. a real that's a really beautiful thing and david too you worked with david quite a bit you say he's your neighbor so you guys obviously had a pretty close friendship and i'm very sorry for your loss with him uh how did that come about? Was it just that you were neighbors or were you guys working together first? No, no, we made, um, we went over and uh, we did armed response first. Okay. And then, um, and David was off Woodrow Wilson Drive up in a very interesting Japanese sort of place with the little gardens and the bamboo mats on the floor. And then he moved over to Benda, which was a much bigger house. And that's when um, uh, he was in our neighborhood. And my uh, kid, Max, uh, not Max, but Christopher, went to school with David's daughter, Kansas. And uh, so we would go over and watch the Kentucky Derby and uh, you know, we'd, we'd goof and have dinner and we'd have, and then he eventually he moved out to La, La Tuna Canyon to that ranch. Mm-hmm. And we'd go out and have Easter dinner there. Cool. And it was crazy, crazy times out there because the strange thing about that house on La, Little La, uh, Tuna Canyon, I was watching later, I was watching Satan's Cheerleaders that John Carradine was in. And they pull up to John Ireland's house and I realized that that is in fact David's house that he's living in now. And there's grass out front of it in the movie. David had horses and he had a a sort of a corral thing set up in the property up front between the house and the the road. But that that house in Satan's Cheerleaders is the house David Carradine owned later in life uh, on Latuna Canyon Road. I know exactly which house you're talking about from that picture. That is very weird. (laughs) You know, stuff like that happens. Years ago, 
we were looking for a location to shoot Scalps, a movie called Scalps. And we drove around off the 14 freeway going toward Aqua Dulce, uh, Vasquez Rocks, maybe you might know from that. Mm-hmm. And we pulled off the road and we found a property and there was a house there and the people's name were Alfreys. And the Alfrey family said, yeah, you can film on our property. They had a lot of property and they let us run electricity from their house to uh, our lights out night. We had, that was where the tent and the girl got scalped and the girl ran yeah. and got shot with the arrow, was all on the Alfie's property. And years later, Dan Golden and I are making, uh, we're producing Ginger Baker's instructional drum video, um, Master Technique with Ginger Baker from Cream. Yeah. So we go out to see Ginger to finish up the, the business. Ginger is living in the Alfrey house. I couldn't believe it. It was the same exact house we had shot scalps at. <laughs> And, and Ginger was in the polo pony, so he had put some stables up, but he was living in exactly the same house. So it's, it's a weird, it's, that's weird to me. That's, that's, that's very that's weird. Strange. Yeah. And I have to ask you, Ginger Baker is notoriously irascible. How was it working with him? You know, I saw that there was, I didn't see the documentary, but I heard there was a documentary called Beware Mr. Baker. It's interesting. I'm going to try to watch it, but Ginger was fine. He was great. We didn't have any issues with him at all. The things I remember most about him was that he hollowed out his cigarettes. He chain smoked. He hollowed the cigarettes out. They'd be half marijuana and half tobacco. And he smoked them all the way through the drum video. It didn't have any effect on his playing or anything. But, and he had a fireplace in the Alfrey house. And all the time you would sit with him, he would smoke and then he would try to flick the cigarette across the room and land it in the fire. <laughs> There must have been a thousand cigarette butts in that in that fireplace, from where he was tossing them across the room as he was as he was chain smoking. <laughs> no, we didn't have any trouble. We didn't have trouble with Ginger. No. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, I get we you touched on scalps, and uh, I, I I don't know that there's anything left to be said on it. I think you this is one probably one of your most talked about films, aside from maybe Hollywood Chainsaw, but um, there. What for me? What was it that drew you to the material for it? At that point, I know you tried to. You'd been uh, just made a few films before it. What gave you the idea to go after this? Well, I had just moved to California from Florida. I'm back in Florida now, uh, and I, I ran into somebody that I'd known in Florida, uh, and they were impressed that we had made the Alien Dead for $15,000. And they said, I can get $15,000 together. Can we make something? And Don Jackson, I don't know if you know Don, now deceased, um, he made The Demon Lover and Hell Comes to Frogtown and Rollerblade and all this. Yeah, 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 okay. Don and I were extremely tight friends from back before we both moved to California. We knew each other from the East Coast. And Don had an idea for a movie, he said, the scalps and, and it was about a possessed killer Indian. I said, great. I said, uh, so I sat down. I didn't have a table because uh, we were very poor uh, when I moved to California. I had a briefcase that I sat on my lap with a manual typewriter. And I wrote that thing in a couple days. And I said, I'm going to make the cheapest movie ever. Six kids, a station wagon, and a tent. And I said, that is the lowest production that I could think of. Uh, and that's that's kind of how we did it. And um it's not a good film, uh, but it did play in theaters. Yeah. 
And the fact that it played in theaters and they splashed these, you know, big ads and stuff uh, led other people to take me more seriously. Mm-hmm. Now, I wasn't a kid that wanted to make movies. Now, I was a kid who had a movie playing down the road from here. So that helped going forward. That helped get money together for other films, for sure. Such an interesting film. And I think the reason it's lasted so long is because of those little unique moments that you don't see in other films. Well, I think what we were trying to do, or at least what I was trying to do, I had it in my head that I was going to try to create a sensation of claustrophobia in a wide open space. And that was the main, that was my main goal was to make people feel constricted, confined um, in in an open space. And you'll see some scenes where I would find a road that went through a gully where the dirt was up high and then the road would go, so the truck would go through and it would just sort of almost make it, it made it through, but it was tight. And, uh, I, and that, and I think the musical score, I found the film to be, de- I always found it to be depressing um, or, or moody, but at least it created, uh, it created some kind of a mood within the person who watched it. And I think that washed over a lot of the amateurism um, in the film was how gloomy it was, you know, and how, uh, how sort of desperate the situation seemed to be. But we were just, we were just trying to make a film. I mean, we barely knew what, how, how to run double sync sound. I mean, right. <laughs> there's so many different cameras were used and so many different types of film stocks like the Alien Dead. It had, five, four or five different film stocks used, depending on what we could get our hands on that weekend. And uh, strangely enough, that was completely recut and re-edited by the distributor. And we really felt like they'd ruined our movie. Uh, but in looking back, you go, who cares, right? It's just, <laughs> it's just, it was just a pothole in the road of uh, where we were going, so. Um. so. So with that, what would you, or do you even, have you even thought about this? What do you think was the first movie where you completed it and you felt like, I think I get this now? Probably The Tomb, which also got re-edited a lot because we were working with an Israeli company that didn't get what I was doing. The Mm -hmm. Tomb is kind of a comedy and they don't like that. People want stuff played straight. And um, I have a strange sense of humor and I'll usually, if something strikes me as really funny, I'll go for it. You know, uh, so it was good that later I could actually make real comedies. Yeah. But, um, the tune was a huge hit and it was probably the first time we had any money. We had $185,000 and um, it was the first time we were able to actually have a real crew and a real editing room. And because we used to like Biohazard, we used to edit that at Herbert L. Strock Productions. If you know Herb Strock. He was a crotchety, cranky old guy who liked me. He'd made, um, uh, I was a teenage Frankenstein and Dracula and stuff like that. He had an editing room and he'd let us in at night. So we would edit overnight. And I mean, while cuts were being made, we'd lay on the floor and sleep. There was nowhere to sleep in there, but that was the cheapest we could get. But the tomb was a real movie. It was made by distributors, you know, who had their say. And, but it, it also had tremendous distribution. And it, it gave me Sybil Danning, John Carradine, and Cameron Mitchell. So yeah, that was uh, <clears throat> that was quite a trick. 
that was uh that was like i know cameron mitchell at that time he kept showing up uh, kind of like john carradine he kept showing up in these these really niche genre pieces uh and, and you've definitely as you said at the beginning of this trying to uh get those people in how aside from like john carradine where you had an end there uh how difficult is it when you're reaching out to some of these people and say hey i'm i'm doing a horror movie and i want you in it <laughs> depend you know, on how much how much alimony they owe <laughs> you know it's very funny uh, as you should say that cameron was a guy who had a he had a gambling problem yeah <laughs> uh, of course racing and so he was always needing money and um uh, but he was game to work He was one of those guys who wanted to work like john carity they want to work and you know you meet their price and they come in and Cameron Mitchell did a great job. He was, he kind of drove you a little nuts. They called him nutsy. He was cause his, his behavior was so bizarre. Uh, they called him nutsy. That was his nickname. <laughs> and um, I worked with him a couple times. I really liked him and he was, um, he was a very cool guy, but I mean, he would just, I guess, take his paycheck and blow it at Santa Anita. And then tomorrow he would need another paycheck, so. He's the Chico marks of character actors. Yes. <laughs> I guess so. But everybody liked him and he had a sort of a name and he wasn't particular, you know, he wasn't too choosy, but we had him in really good roles. I think he played a college professor or, or an archeologist or something in the tomb. In the tomb. Yeah. Yeah. There wasn't anything in that movie that uh, would be questionable. I don't think. Kit Natividad maybe, but you know, <laughs> she took, she took, uh, she took Mamie Van Doren's role. And when that fell apart, but um, I loved it. I loved it. And, uh, you know, like I said, a lot of people, they want, they want to work and that's their, uh, that's their whole thing. I think I found with a lot of movies where they bring in those old character actors, they're so, you can almost see the trust that directors have in them and the way that they just are able to commit 110%, no matter what the dialogue is. I mean, I've seen John Carradine in some shitty, shitty films uh, just spouting out nonsensical dialogue, but he spouts it out with conviction, and that's why it yeah. works. Is that your finding with those, especially the older character actors? Well, you know, it's uh, when you're moving very quickly, there's not often a lot of time to coach people and coach them and go sit down and discuss the roles and what their motivation is and all that stuff that uh, younger, a lot of younger actors want to get involved in. Sometimes you need somebody who will just get on with it. And I used to say that Ross Hagen was the guy that if you had no time at all, you could throw Ross in front of the camera, he would give you something. He would give you, he would give you something that you could use. And these guys had presence. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was doing a scene with Lee Van Cleef and, uh, in a bar. And when it was over, Lee looked at me and he says, is that okay? He goes, you, you want anything different? And I thought, I don't have the right to tell Lee Van Cleef. <laughs> and I'm, so, I mean, I, I rarely said anything to any of these kind of actors because I was entrusted being the director of the film, but I, was, I certainly didn't have the career and hadn't worked with the directors that Lee Van Cleef and John Carradine and people like that had worked with. So I didn't get too deep into coaching yeah. <laughs> um, Martin Landau and people like that. They, you know, unless there was something about it, that part or that scene that they didn't, that they weren't getting. And then I would do it in such a diplomatic way. You know, it's like, 
I wouldn't move on unless I asked a, an actor if it was okay, if they were okay. I'd say, is, I, is everybody okay with this? Are you okay? And, uh, and they'd say, yeah, what, how, do you like it? I said, I liked it. And then they'd say, well, if you liked it, let's go on. And Bobby Carradine was like that too. Bobby was very, very easy. We're still good friends. Uh, Bobby was like, if you liked it, I'm happy. And because um, you got to get on with it. You got to yeah. get on. Sometimes an armed response had a fairly lengthy shooting schedule about four weeks mm -hmm. but you needed it <clears throat> if you've ever seen that movie you needed you needed four weeks to tell mm -hmm. that story but uh, you still had to move along and van cleef he wouldn't work more than nine hours a day period and uh, i remember there was a scene i don't know if you know that film but he throws dawn over a table dawn wildsmith they're they're in the bar and a guy pulls a knife and david has a shotgun and lee does a little kung fu thing he throws her and we got all the way up to that point and it was the ninth hour. And I said, Lee, I said, if you would just do this one shot and throw over this just table, because all I had to do was this and she flew over the table. I said, then we could come back tomorrow. We'd be on a completely new deal. You start scrap from fresh and brand new scene. I don't think I can make it, Fred. That was it. Thank you, sir. Good evening. <laughs> you had to come back tomorrow and start that scene. And because uh, always it's just like lunch. Mm -hmm. If you've got one shot to do and it's lunchtime, if you were to do that one shot, it might take you five more minutes. But if you push that shot till after lunch and touch ups and this and getting it will be 45 minutes after you come back to do what you could have done in less than five if you just finish it. But sometimes they'll say in the film business, six hours is the lunch break. Mm -hmm. And the only way you can go over that six hours is if the camera does not turn off. If you start, say, at like one, lunch is one o'clock if the set's seven. If you start at 12.58, you can go to 102 if the camera isn't cut. But if you cut the camera, you have to break. Mm -hmm. Or there's a penalty involved. You owe these people right. all this money for... And it's so funny, too, because there's a craft service table on every movie set where these people eat. They never stop eating. Yeah. Gary, <laughs> Gary Graver used to say, it's not about the film, it's about the food. Because people seem more interested in what they were going to eat than the movie they were making sometimes, you know? Having worked on a couple of indies, I agree with that entirely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, I want to ask everything about Lee Van Cleef. He's a, just such a fascinating guy. What did, what did you find him like as just a person? Uh, again, he wanted, to, he wanted to work, and we talked about doing some other projects that never came to be. I used to pick him up in the morning and drive him to the set, and he had a house up on Rosarita in Encino. And when you walked in his house, he had a full bar, full Western bar like you'd see in a movie. And he had a beer tap because he drank beer all the time. And he would be pulling one at 6.15 a.m. when I pulled up. You want a, want a beer, Fred? Uh, no, no, that's okay. And behind the bar, he had the hats from all the Westerns he had made. He kept all the hats. And in the backyard, he had a little studio where he recorded singing. He would sing and he made his own recordings and he painted. And he had an artist studio out there where he would record music and, uh, and paint. And those are the things mostly that I, that I remember about him. That and You'd see him go from the um, trailer. You'd see him, there's a liquor store on that block where the bar was. And you'd see him run across into the liquor store and there was a six pack of beer and run back over. Thank God he didn't have to drive to and from the set. So, so yeah. did you did you get a chance to try on one of those hats? 
No, no, no. Oh. I, you know, I my thing was to get them in the car. Yeah. Get the car. <laughs> we got to work. Once you get in the car, you talk to them while you're driving. And he told me why his finger was missing. I, 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 for the life of me, I cannot remember the story he told me, but the end of one of his fingers was missing. And then he told me some story how they accidentally blew up the bridge in Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. They blew it up with the cameras not rolling. Um, yeah, yeah. That's the sequence. And they had to go back and build the whole bridge all over again. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, he's pretty iconic. He's in my like top five of the people I worked with. That um, he's definitely in the top five. Of Who are the them. other four? I would say uh, Telly Savalas was uh, one of them. Um, I would say Martin Landau. And Robert Vaughn, and probably John Carradine. You know, yeah. We made films with people who are fairly iconic, uh, like Steve or Steve Steven Seagal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, Chevy Chase. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, there are people that you're kind of in awe of. Uh, I certainly was uh, enamored with Barbara Steele. Oh. I met I, her I a couple of years ago. Too. Oh, I'm sorry. I used to pick her up and drive her to set as well. I would have too. <laughs> I met her a couple of years ago at a convention and she could not have been sweeter, nicer, just, just a genuine genteel lady is what, how I would have described her, a true English woman. Yes. It was great. Uh, you've also mentioned um, a, a, a lot of them you've already said, but she said Hans Hall as well. Uh, when you worked Yo, with him, uh, yeah. was there was a guy that I fought for. They wanted John Biner. I don't know if you know. Oh, yeah, the impressionist. Yeah. They were dead set on John Biner. I finally said, I'll pay Hunts's fee. If you'll let me hire him, I will pay his fee. And uh, it was $1,500. Um, and I did. Yeah. And um, And I was loving it because, again, I was the only person on the set who uh, knew who Hunts Hall was. So I'd go in his trailer and he, we were talking about monogram and the Bowery. Oh, awesome. It's kind of like Peter Cushing. When I worked with Peter Cushing, I, I was the only person who knew who Peter Cushing was. On shockwaves? Was, uh, yeah, the crew was uh, college kids. They were part of a Reuben train. I had a, taught a class mm -hmm. at a college, a film class. So the crew was pretty much the students from his class. They were all young kids. And Reuben Train and Ken Wiederhorn, I asked Ken, the director, how they came to choose John Carradine and Peter Cushing for this movie, because I said I'd never been done before. And they said that they didn't really know who they were, but they knew they were horror stars and, and that they'd been pitched to them. And so they hired them, but they, they had no clue really who Peter Cushing was. So again, I was the only person who wanted to talk to him. So I'd go in his trailer and we'd sit there and chit chat about stuff and and I met John Carradine on that show as well. So it was um, it was a great experience, a great experience for me. Oh, imagine what what so Cushing, uh, he's such an enigma and such I'm sure an interesting guy. When you were talking to him, what sort of things did he tell you? You know, we would talk about. I always found that if you want to talk to somebody, don't ask them a bunch of questions that they get asked all the time. And so we would talk about other things, you know, and there was a set romance going on between um, Brooke Adams 
and uh, Luke Halpin, who was the kid from Flipper. Mm -hmm. And uh, Peter Cushing was, because they were going to split, because Brooke was from New York. And now Peter Cushing was advising them on their romance. And, and he was very interested in what a hurricane was like. He wanted to know what it was like to be in a hurricane. So we talked about that. And he was such a nice guy. I, I, I said one thing that riled him up. And I, cause I, you know, you never hear much about Peter Cushing getting riled up, but I asked him about um, a guy named Russ Jones, who was, I think an artist who had claimed that he was putting a project together with Peter Cushing or something. And I asked him about this project that was gonna happen with this guy, Russ Jones. And Peter Cushing got very, got very animated. And he said, after a beat, you know, you could see I'd said something. Same thing happened with Barbara Steele. <laughs> And he said, the problem with Mr. Russ Jones is he thinks he does too much. <laughs> and he chain smoked. Both him and John Carradine chain smoked players cigarettes. They come in a little box. They've got a little mm -hmm. British sailor on them. And they're the highest tar and highest nicotine cigarettes known to man. And I asked him, why did he choose to smoke those cigarettes? And he said, well, he liked the little box in the picture of the sailor. <laughs> And I guess it's, it's common knowledge that he wore a white, he wore a white glove when he smoked mm -hmm. and it would become very stained and he would sure. throw it away and he had a bunch of them. And if Karen had smoked the same, same cigarettes, same exact cigarettes. Wow. Peter Cushing, you couldn't do anything for him. You couldn't do anything for him. He would do things for you. Would you like a cup of coffee? You know, he would wow. take the grip girl by the elbow and the wrist and he would walk her across the swamp because we were in a, mangrove uh which was about knee deep and you'd have to get from one side to the other and and cushing he would escort the girls across the the through the water wow. john carradine though you couldn't do enough for <laughs> he'd say would you like a cup of coffee and he'd say lots of cream lots of sugar <laughs> you know? and, and john carradine let you do everything for him peter cushing <laughs> let you do anything for him so what uh, what riled up barbara Steele? You know, uh, she was good friends with my friend Richard Harrison, who was an American actor, went to Italy. He was James H. Yeah. Nicholson's son-in-law. And Nicholson had sent him to Italy to be in some Hercules movie or an Italian Western. And Harrison liked it there, so he stayed there. So he came back, but he had all these European friends, Gordon Mitchell and uh, people like Vince Edwards. And I met Barbara Steele at Richard's house for dinner one night. And just in a conversation, I said something about, uh, we were probably talking about Winds of War and her producing with Dan Curtis. And then I said to her, I said, you know, cause she was in the later Dark Shadows reboot as Dr. Hoffman, I think. Yes. I said, what was the, what, how did it compare producing with Dan Curtis to acting in a show for Dan Curtis? And she got really upset. Apparently she hated it. <laughs> and I, and asking her about what her experience was working under Curtis as an actor, uh, it, it set off a nerve. That's all I can huh. say. Yeah. Wow. I didn't realize she and Richard Harrison were close friends. That's, yes. that's an odd pairing. <laughs> the guy from really. Ninja Terminator. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. If you knew Richard, he was, ex he's still alive, but he's extremely yeah. sophisticated. He's got, he came back with a continental accent that you can't quite nail down. 
Mm-hmm. He's a very elegant uh, person. And um, he had a ton of friends. And we met a lot of different people through Richard. He's, uh, yeah, he's actually one I've been trying to get contact info for to see if he'd like to do this. He's a, another one with just a fascinating career to me. He's had health issues for years. He, he sort of he understood. his back and, uh, and it's just been a real thing for him. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, well, you mentioned asking questions you've probably not been asked before. And so with Hunts Hall, I have to ask, because I've only recently learned this, uh, but he apparently won a uh, once won a dick measuring contest against Milton Berle at a Frank Sinatra party. So I have to ask, did you ever see a schlong? <laughs> no, no. Um, Hunts was a great guy. He lived on Chandler with his wife and he actually would start coming to parties and stuff. And um, he wore big overalls. He wasn't a big guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's why those guys played boys for so long. If you look at some of their movies, usually the female leads are towering over these guys. Yeah. And Hans was upset that he didn't get billing on the poster for Cyclone. He said, you pay for my name. He goes, why don't you use it? And I said, you know, it's, it's beyond me. Um, but we all stayed friends uh, after that, which mm-hmm. happens quite often, you know, if you get on well with people. You know, he told us some stories about them destroying some negatives and stuff by setting off the water sprinkler system in the studio. And uh, it destroyed uh, all the film that they'd shot that day up to that point. Apparently, they were just devilish, you know, when they were working. They, they, they were arrogant and um, disrespectful of authority. So. Was this going back to when they were the dead-end kids? Or was it no, the, I think it's kind in of the, gone through to the trends? And when Monogram became allied artists, I think. Okay. That period of time where Leo Gorsi was drinking all the time. And- oh, yeah. <laughs> I can only imagine those stories. <laughs> so uh, you did wrestle. And um, from that, you, you gained a friendship with Terry Funk. And he ends up showing up in some of your films. Uh, of course, um, Mom, Can I Keep Her? Probably uh, the one that I think he's best known for, at least of the movies you've done. Um, and that whole film is fascinating to me. First off, you've got Don McLeod, who was like, you either get Bob Burns or Don McLeod when you need an ape in a movie. And so uh, how did you end up with Don McLeod for that? You know, it's, uh, we were doing, we had a three picture deal with Roger Corman and we were going to make three family films. Mm-hmm. And they wanted people in these children's film stuff, they wanted an animal. They want animals and animals are difficult to work with. I used my own dog, Roxy, in Invisible Mom. And it was so frustrating. And somebody came up, they said, Fred, they said, calm down. They said, um, your dog's doing as good as a, any dog they've trained to do this. They said, so you're not, you're not doing so bad. I said, okay. So when it came to the next film, I said, you know what, let's, let's, let's do a gorilla. That way you can have an animal, but it's a person. So right. it won't slow things down so much. And I'm not sure, but you know, I knew all the makeup people. I started out in this business wanting to be a makeup artist. So I, I knew all of them. And I'm sure I just, I'm sure I just asked around and met Don. Don did another film for us. And I might do another gorilla movie because he's easy to work with. I like him. He's very talented. And, uh, and we had a great time uh, doing these movies for Roger. And they were all kids films. They were all 10 day movies. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was a job. 
how how was it working with Roger Corman? He's uh, you know you hear all kinds of stories, none of them really bad, other than no, you can't have that. You'll figure out how to shoot it without that. <laughs> Thanks. Roger was never as cheap with us as people have you know said. And I mean, I'm not saying that the stories about him aren't true. I'm just saying that for our from our end of things, uh, I always thought Roger was very reasonable. Uh, we got into a thing about 60-foot centerfold. Roger wanted a girl named Lisa Boyle, who was in some of their women's prison movies, to play the 60-foot centerfold, but she wasn't what I thought was the right person. And then Maria Ford, who had been had done some later would accuse us all of only hiring her if she got naked. And I mean, I'm the only person who made a Maria Ford movie where she never got naked. But she started pushing. She wanted that part. And I said, no, 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 I don't see Maria Ford as a centerfold. Then she went around my back to Roger and had Roger lean on me. And I said to Roger, I, I got some pictures of a girl named JJ North who lived in New Jersey who had been in Vampire Vixens from Venus for a friend of mine. And I showed these pictures to Roger. I said, Roger, this is what the centerfold of the month, this is what a centerfold looks like. And he said, okay, but we had to fly her from New Jersey and put her up in a hotel with the per diem and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And Roger said, I'll pay half of it, you pay half of it. And I said, that's, that's fair, that's fair. And if Roger saw something and he wanted you to go back out and reshoot it, he would generally give you the money to do it. He, he, sometimes he made us pay. But, you know, he, he, for me, he always lived up to his contracts. I said to people, you can't, because I've been around the block, as you yeah. get out in your introduction. But an average kid going in there cannot negotiate a contract with Roger Corman. Roger's been doing this since he was a baby. Yeah. You're in it for the first time. And, you know, Roger's a real businessman, but he's not a crook. Unlike some of the people that you might have named. Roger's not a crook. He's just a very good negotiator. And you, you have almost no chance as a first time <laughs> filmmaker or director or whatever. But I always did pretty well. And I was always very happy with our association. That's great. Yeah, his, his famous line is always, uh, he, he'd tell the young filmmakers, look, if, you, if this goes well for you, you'll never have to work for me again. That was kind of his, Joe Dante, he said that yeah. too. And, uh, uh, Ron Howard, and probably, probably, he's probably still saying it today. <laughs> he's a he's a very funny guy. When you go in to make a deal, I would always go in and pitch. I, I would make a little book, and it would have a cover with some artwork I'd faked up, and it would have a little outline and some things of how. And I'd velo bind it and had a clear cover, and I'd go in there and pitch it, and then he'd say, "Well, come back in two weeks. Let me look at this," and you go back. And he had a glass desk. I'm sure he still does. It's glass, uh, no drawers, just a big sheet of glass so he can look at you through this desk. And opposite him, he had a nice chair, something you know, like this. The chair in front of him is a single piece of plexiglass shaped like an S and there's no arms on it. So you're sitting on this clear piece of plexiglass like you're floating in the air. And he's looking at you through this giant clear glass desk. And I'll tell you, you never felt more vulnerable in your entire life. It was one of the most disarming places to find yourself when you want to negotiate a deal with Roger Corman. 
<laughs> I, I went back in on the 60 foot centerfold and he opened up the, the little presentation I made and it had little notes all over it, little penciled notes everywhere. And he looked through them and he looked through them and he looked through them. And then he, he just, and I thought, oh my God. Then he closed the cover and he, he looked at me and he said, Fred, he goes, I'd like her to be 60 feet tall, 10 feet taller than a 50 foot woman. I said, okay. He said, he said, that's it. I said, that's it. <laughs> yeah. And I said, done deal, but he's just like, uh, like George Costanza on Seinfeld, get out, just get out while you can. And uh, I was, I was always amazed at, at, at that because he would make all these notes and then like watching Invisible Mom, you're sitting there watching Invisible Mom and he's writing in this yellow pad and Ashok Amitraj and I are sitting there thinking, oh my God, what's wrong? What's wrong? And he would, he would write all through the whole thing and then the lights would go up and he'd look at you and he'd go, good job, let's lock it. And we're like, yeah, get out. Time to get out. So, so centerfold was called, it was called the incredible 30 foot centerfold when I first went in there. And I was wanted to be 60 feet tall. I have written down as a question how you landed on 60 feet because I, I immediately thought of Attack of the 50 Foot Woman the first time I saw it. I'm like, was just they just need a one upper? <laughs> Roger claims that that 50 Foot Woman movie was his idea. He claimed that that was his idea. And when you, have, I don't know if you've ever seen the 60 Foot Centerfold poster. Yeah. You get to see it. Roger shows it to me and he wants me to know that the fireman aiming a fire hose at her crotch was his idea. That was his idea. <laughs> her private areas there with a fire hose. That was, that was his contribution. Oh, man. <laughs> um, so when you were also, I don't know if this is when you were working with Roger exactly, but um, so the, the Mask of the Red Death sets were, were about to be destroyed. So you kind of in a Roger Corman way said, hey, wait, we could shoot a movie there. You got Russ Hamblin. Was he just hanging out and available? Russ, Russ and we were all great friends. Okay. And I, I tell people I used to tuck his daughter in at night when she was four years old, Amber, who was for whatever reason, she really liked me. Uh, all the people that uh, Amber, she was very fond of me. And Russ and I had been friends since around Cyclone. Okay. And um, it was one of those situations. It's probably the third, fourth, fifth time that I'd gone in onto a movie set that was going to be destroyed and shoot something. Mm -hmm. Most of the times that it would become a film. There are a few times, like you mentioned, the Aldo Ray footage, uh, where I shot something and it did not become a movie. You know, uh, but for the most part, when I would run in there and shoot something, it would become a film. And uh, this castle set was available. And so we ran in there. We didn't even have a script. Ernie Farina, who's a stop motion animator, Ernie wrote 20 pages, maybe. And we put some sword fights together. All the castle stuff, all the castle stuff with Lyle Wagner and all that was all done in two days. And then we just kind of went in hiatus until sometime later, we put four more days together out at Vasquez Rocks in a little studio somewhere. And we finished the movie. And I took it to Roger, I said, Roger, you could call this Deathstalker 3. And he's like, no more, he said, no more sword and sorcery for me. I said, okay, fine. So we, we ended up got stuck with it. But the best thing about that movie was when the four day shoot they have what's in the business, they have what's called a three day week. 
If you'll rent the equipment for three days, they'll let you have it for a week. It's a three-day week. So we had to have the cameras for four days. So we rented on a three-day week, we rented a grip electric lighting truck with the cameras and all that stuff. And you pick them up on Friday because the places are closed Saturday and Sunday. Mm -hmm. And you say, well, my shoot starts on Monday. Well, it's due back the following Monday. So you end up with Friday night, Saturday, Sunday. There was four days of um, Demon Sword. And then you had Friday, Saturday, Sunday again. So you had five and a half days should, should you choose to use that equipment before you had to return it. And we looked in the bank and we said, what do we got? We had $19,000. And I said, let's make a five-day movie around the pickups for Demon Sword. Mm -hmm. And we made one. I said, what? We have no money. What can we do? We can show some naked girls. So we said... Of course. <laughs> let's, let's, let's make Bad Girls from Mars. It was originally called Emmanuel Goes to Hollywood. And we got, right. <laughs> got Edie Williams and Brink Stevens and a couple other girls. And we had a little small studio behind a liquor store. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we made Bad Girls from Mars. And that movie was far more successful than Demon Sword ever was. Demon Sword cost maybe 120, 140 grand. Bad Girls from Mars ended up costing 60,000 all in and 35 millimeter. And, uh, it was, wow. and it was a better movie too, I think. It's a great film. And you, I've, I've read where you've said that that was inspired a bit by Hollywood Boulevard, the Corman film, yes. and, and an actual Walter Paisley movie. So I have to point that out. Uh, just the, the concept, kind of a satire send up of Hollywood itself. Yeah, I wanted to, and I wish they, there's a, the, the film is cut. There's eight minutes missing from the film when it was released because the MPAA for an R rating said we had to cut eight minutes. Mm -hmm. And I said, why? I said, there's no sex in the film. I, I said, there's some, there's nude girls, but there are no sexual situations in the movie. And they said, Fred, they said, it's just the preponderance of nudity. <laughs> <laughs> just the sheer amount. And uh, so they cut eight minutes out of it. And I'm still sitting on the original 35 millimeter camera negatives and um, of the uncut version, but the film fell and we still own it. Mm -hmm. But the distribution is in perpetuity with Lionsgate and they've distributed the old one inch and they're not interested in letting us do anything with it. And, um, and they won't report to me. So I won't let them have access to the 35 negatives. So there'll never be a Blu-ray unless they, right. unless they come and treat, treat us the way we're supposed to be treated. They're not going to be getting that anytime soon. I imagine that's probably an issue with someone as prolific as you, uh, where you're working with different production companies all the time, and as things age and their popularity grows, and especially in cult film, being able to get those things out into the world probably becomes more difficult because of that licensing. Well, how about that, guys? How many stories does Fred Olin Ray have? Tune in in a couple of weeks when we release part two to hear many more stories about the people he's worked with, the movies he's made, and why he is such a legend. I hope you guys have enjoyed this today. As always, this is the Walter Paisley Movie House. I'm your host, Dylan Rorick. I've been here with my engineer, Jason Harris. Our music, as always, is by Jonathan Harmon. And as we get back out into the world, remember to take care of your servers and tip them well, because at the Walter Paisley Movie House, we don't piss on hospitality. See you next time, kids.